Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on poet Ben Luton. Take a listen. Hi there, Ben Luton speaking. Well, it's nine days in, and I've already failed my New Year's resolution. So much for resolve. I've decided to move on with my life by reading you some Karen Lessing poetry from the collected poems. I'll also be reading some of my work. Um, I cannot overemphasize the importance of Karen Lessing, and I didn't choose these pieces to to claim identity with her, but I just I've been reading them recently and I, I just thought they were important to show. Before I, I begin reading her, I'm going to share a Robert Creeley poem, and this is basically to potentially help you visualize the form of Karen Lessing and Particularly, if you know Robert Creeley's work, you can imagine it. Here we go, Robert Creeley. For my mother, Genevieve Jules Creeley, April 8th, 1887, October 7th, 1972. Tender, semi-articulate flickers of your presence all those years past now, 85, impossible to count them one by one, like addition, subtraction, missing not one. The last curled up in on yourself, position you take in the bed, hair wisped up on your head, atop knot, body, skeletal, eyes closed against it must be further disturbance, breathing a skim of time lightly kicks the intervals, days, days, and years of it. Work changes, sweet flesh caught at the edges, dignity's faded dilemma. It is your life. Oh, no one's forgotten anything ever. They want to make you Happy when they remember. Walk a little. Get up now. Die safely. Easily into singleness. Too tired with it to keep on and on. Waves break at the darkness under the road. Sounds in the faint night's softness. Look at them catching the light. White edge as they turn always again and again dead one two three hours all these minutes pass is it was it ever you alone again how long you kept at it your pride your lovely confusing discretion mother i love you for whatever that means meant more then I know, body gave me my own generous, inexorable place of you. I feel 
the mouth's sluggishness slips on turns of things said to you too soon too late wants to go back to beginning smells of the hospital room the doctor she responds to now the order get me there deaths lets you out comes true this that endlessly circular life and we came back to see you one last time this time your head shuddered it seemed your eyes wanted i thought to see who it was i am here and will follow and let's segue into karen lessing fontaine i to see sound sounds ear of piled rocks moss-headed these silences to this to that rock tree tree rock to cover your white voices black blown springing from bulb big as a nail big as skin big as sky hurled walking the sky's surge into the echo web lush nest of same drawn sisterly drone the wave breaks a flutter of seams keeps answering all ways your voice your inaccessible heart in the crevasses is it breath you want tongue its reeds pellets rain fails drink drink from my snow fields stood here your hair in leaves as if all you'll never know rose to the edge bleached ate its way higher each time then dropped leaving its markings only huge mouth mouth of the cave chasm rock petaled eye wood pearl lash the ruin risen world towards you the slate opening opening slate your life branches to choose among an ear for music you sing for passage bercuse lullaby the beads coral from breast to breast what i loved as smoke rises the wide night's plated dress the honeycomb of stars in which you walked impacted the silver curves an image over the image as if through the grain through its plied murmur we lent each other light phantom evening the voice at the bottom of the stairs the sound of glass shattering sight of multiple events variable mirror in sleep we touch and its trough if i could say to you this was the glass this blood infused word shadow thread i would warm your mouth with this glass nearly full with ice and light when sight is quenched ghosts the ghosts in us you said sing waist high stepped 
swarm in drowsiness, the grains, Persephone, hell, and the grape, God are one, meshed fragments, plundered arms. And that other transparent voice, mirror breath breathed on, broken, the soul after all, a woman, endlessly descends, bunched shadows, bathed in transparency as silk watered your rings new white over close-fitting green flesh the morning cyclamen the sea with all its penance i'm back folks now i'll read from my own work i um i've been reading a book of poetry by a poet named Julia Madsen, published by our own Trembling Pillow Press. And it very much has to do with oral history. And uh, then I went back and started reading Testimony by Reznikov. And I've decided to return to this work. It's by no means perfect. It lacks perfection, but... I am just showing it because it's uh, because I'm interested in 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 working with uh, oral history ideas, and the work I was working on after you know it's been a respite from it. I'm getting back to it was about the downturn in the 1980s in Lafayette. Now I'm going to read two interviews that are heavily edited by me because of this. They are definitely uh, interpretations. So for that reason, I'm not going to name either individual, only to say that one is a man, one a woman of similar age and uh, near locations to each other. The 1980s. I am a human cogito in a particular rhythm of punishment. For me, the 1980s occurred in hell. I used to have hair. The lottery will ruin my life. I need a purpose. It makes me laugh. God, we went to school. We are dinosaurs, I said to my friend who is in the mechanic business. How are you doing? Struggling. I'll make you feel better. Three weeks ago, my insurance costs increased from half a million to a million. He laughed. I feel better now. This was before I had made money. Sammy, I grew up in the Depression, and I fought in a war, Dad said. I never went through what you're going through. Remember this, he said. When you turn this around, and you will, don't feel guilty if you start making money. I was concerned. I did not know what money was. I'm fearful of human nature, selfish, lethargic. Don't feel guilty when you start making money. My third cousin and mentor, Dr. Bernard Bienvenu, had a lot of philosophies these terse statements. Life is a simple thing. The more successful a man is, the more unsuccessful 
he is likely to be in the future. Look at Elvis Presley. Look at Little Richard. All the people end up on drugs, unable to handle success. It is a way for the devil to have your soul. It's, it's the camel having to go through that desert. I put both hands on the wheel. From the time when we leave home to the time when we get to school, on the way to school, school in every morning, my three little girls say our prayers and ask God, what can we do to make the world a better place? For what can we thank Jesus our Lord? My children are good kids. I've had to punish them at times, and the punishment of those times made a difference in their lives, starting when they and I were very young. And they understand right from wrong, a learned institution from my father. He instituted in me the give and take of punishment, but I do not know if I could ever be as tough on them as he was tough on me. What did he have to make him able to do that? Grand Isle is sinking. When I leave this world, is the world a better place? Then we messed up. That is what I think about. I want to tell you about Dad because one of his philosophies has crystallized throughout my own ways of doing good to others and for myself as a Christian tenant in the world. Dad was a cattleman country boy from Brobridge, Louisiana. Growing up to adversities in the Great Depression, he grew up delivering milk on horseback to put himself through college and post his postdocs. Dad graduated in agriculture from, from South Louisiana Institute in Lafayette, which is what ULL was called years ago, and he went to do erosion work for the Soil Conservation Department in North Louisiana. Later, he went into the war. The war and the adversity of the Depression and the war taught him an echo of Huey Long's slogan, Every Man a King. You see, the era taught him well that everyone would, would better care for things that they owned than they would things for someone else. He came to own a fleet of trucks, and then from 1960 to 1968, he became, was a state senator. There he realized that the maintenance on the trucks and keeping up the trucks were, were a problem. He felt that if he could make every man his own boss, who would see to things as being their own boss that they would not see to if he was working for someone else, then he would put the, the responsibility at the lowest level. This was his lease concept that I myself employ to this very day of speaking to you. His first obstacle in doing such was the Public Service Commission because he was dealing with a regulated industry for which the rates, the rules, and the guidelines were set. I remember him say that, unfortunately, establishing the lease concept was a difficult thing, but that he was, fortunately, well thought of at the state capitol, where Long was shot and the police unloaded. I remember his words. I am not sure when exactly. Exactly 1963, his Sam Broussard Trucking Company. I remember him say, yes, sir, whatever his name, Mr. Larry Verrett, Mr. Earl King Jr., and many others, 
I am presenting an opportunity to you. And if you lease on to us and you work hard, and if you hustle, you're going to be your own boss. You can become what you want to become, Dad said. A hard lesson. A college graduate himself, Earl started with Dad, bought a one-ton truck from Dad, which was supportable because he already owned a pickup truck. Nobody could afford to buy one of those big trucks with the gin poles. Most people at the time would start with a pickup truck, but one-tons were affordable. Dad kept three or four in the lot all the times, good, heavy, well-built trucks. If Earl worked at it, he could buy a single-axle bobtail two-ton truck that was an International Harvester 1600, but very few people had big trucks, but over a period of time. Later, Earl wanted to go into business for himself. He came to Dad. I am sorry that I would like to leave and start my own business in Morgan City, Dad said. Look, take what you have now. Do better with it. He shook his hand. Not a word he said to our family, who, who depended on his livelihood. Earl told me years later, If I were in his shoes, I would have tried to prevent me from leaving the company, but your daddy wished well of me. It appears my dad's philosophy was always that he remembered where he came from, and that he knew that if he worked hard, lucky enough to be successful, that a few people might, might have given him a break. So he felt that, he always felt that way, that he always felt that the little man needs a break, desires a break, earns a break. I have seen him give people opportunities to better themselves. Unfortunately, fortunately, Many people have taken his opportunity to do very well. Of course, someone took advantage of him. Perhaps, if he were not my own father, I would have. Would have. Dad has been taken to the cleaners, so to speak, $40,000 and one time 100000 There have been other cases. Once, one time, I wrote him a letter. I thought he was uncareful in whom who he helped. I was out of college and fairly young, and my observation of the situation that he had, he had helped someone who was unworthy, who had taken advantage of him. Not once, but twice, it read. It costs you a lot of money in the company, Dad. You have made a mistake. Pardon me? He wrote a letter to me, which I have on file in my safe, and which I read to my wife few years ago. It read that he was sorry to hear my, my dismay, my disappointment, but he was once helped by people in order to want to help others. Though some continued to take advantage, he knew that God knew his heart was right. He hoped that one day I could understand. That was a powerful lesson, a transformative one that I now imitate every day in my life. I heard voices, not in my head, the other voices. Do anything you want. You will be successful, Mom said. I don't want you to be an attorney. I thought of the challenge. Why not? It just ruins good people, 
It is an industry that ruins. The family said, Your mom has sugarcane property, and your daddy has cattle and horses. Remember that. When I got to college, I went to my advisor, and, and she recommended business management. I had an ability for it. I finished first in the College of Commerce, fourth in the university. There were 14,000 students. Before you go to be a doctor, come and see me. I could fix that for you, my advisor said. I had already ruled out medicine because I hate to see children and women suffer. I missed school. I missed writing. I went back. I want to come back. We can't take you back. We taught you everything we have to teach you, everything you know. Go away. Don't come back. Stay away for five years. So I went to work at my dad's truck dealership in New Orleans. I figured that I could work and go to school at Tulane there later. When I had got out of school, the dealership was doing $2 million in business. In a three-year period, I built it up to $5.5 million. I was ready to go back. If you leave, we will all quit, said one of my employees, Odin. What? No, you have really done a lot of good here, and we don't want you to leave, and if you do leave, we are leaving too. I did not know what to do. I was learning a lot. It was a different kind of education, but I was learning. Really? I really have what I want. Why should I go? I asked the secretary, what should I do? I like it here, but I'm really unhappy by not going back. Unhappy mansions, she said. What? She said, you have to decide what is going to make you happy inside yourself. Not books, not anything else. It is going to be inside yourself. I had always wanted to learn. I made up my mind, and then I made up my mind. I looked, I thought, studied it carefully, and I said, now I have everything. You know what I will do? I can continue learning in all kinds of facets, but I will always work. I stayed at the dealership. Texaco and International Harvester offered me positions. Again, I asked for help. Earl answered, if you go to work for a big company, you are going to be a drop in the bucket. But at your daddy's, you will be a drop in a thimble. All differences considered. I began selling tractors for dad. It is funny the way dad said things. When I say this, it is going to sound funny. We were sitting at dinner. We were home for lunch. Mom would cook a big meal every day for lunch. He said, Sammy, I think you are too smart to be selling tractors. I appreciated the compliment, but I did not look at it like I was selling tractors, trying to run the best tractor dealership that we could in the nation, serving the community well, doing a good job. And not that that's not important, but I was trying to run an honest company. Dad, I am not selling tractors. I'm running a business. Well then, everything is going to be okay. Mom laughed. Now I want to speak of Dad and the exhibition of his character as a man who spoke Louisiana French. Cajuns who grew up during the Depression spoke French at home but were not fluent. It is a past and a language, both from which I am half removed. 
and Fort Polk at the start of the war he became an officer who trained people to recede into combat the, the combat the best they could. Because he was a French speaker, he was asked to volunteer to England. Even then, he has always had the spirit to help others. Dad was one of six people who were briefed of D-Day before Normandy came down, landing on Omaha, of all the worst beach, safe behind the guise of his own surviving spirit. Parachuted behind enemy lines, he worked for the French underground as a member of the OSS. On the 50th anniversary of D-Day, Mom and I accompanied him to France, where we stayed at the Belgium Colonel Michel's heirloom home. Before dinner one night, he handed me his diary on an open page. Requested 300 jeeps and 100 rifles for the Colonel Michel's Belgium army to fight the resistance until Patton arrives. This was before the Battle of the Bulge. At the anniversary celebrations, many people who may have been Dad's familiars shook his hand, speaking French words I did not understand, but their words fell on me, and I received, despite the second nature of my English tongue, a sense of his heroism. Colonel Michel and his wife toasted Dad. We held with your supplies, then Patton came. We would have lost. I wonder what that meant to my own situation as a child who knew better, rising out of himself. Did he have trouble reconciling English dad with French dad? Still has trouble. Daddy, why'd you get out of the war? It was going to hell. Go call your mother. It's time to eat. Back home, he spoke only English. He was hard to understand. I was the only guy. It wasn't good enough. It was never good enough. Agnes was my second mother. Agnes, man, why is my dad so hard on me? Don't you see what he is doing to you? He does not want you to turn out like your cousins. Agnes was my black psycho-philosopher. In the late 70s and early 80s, an international harvesting tractor dealership closed down in Lafayette. They offered it to me. On April 7, 1980, I opened up. Prime rate was 21%. International Harvester was in the middle of the longest strike in the history of the UAW. Farm income had peaked out in 1979 and entered a slump from 1980 to 1990. We had $11,000 of full-paying interest per month, which I had to pay. I was 24 years old. It was my first day on the job. On September 1st, 1987, I took over my dad's trunking, trucking companies, Brossard Transport, Sam Brossard Incorporated, and Sam Brossard Trucking Company, and simultaneously I was managing SNS Leasing and Rental Company and two farm equipment dealerships. I was barely 30 years old. I knew nothing about the trucking industry. That morning, dad had called. I want you to come in. We have some problems. In the mid-70s, my CPA did the books. He had made a mistake. You see, where he thought we were free was the specter of $231,000. He is still with us. I feel bad for him. My daddy had known about the problem for quite some time. I would like to think he never understood it. 
He knew that the revenue department said he owed money, as well as seven other trucking companies. He had asked the state to know if we owed them, and they, they would not respond. And no one understood the law, because everybody was caught on the same thing. He thought it was a non-issue. The revenue department had gone back to 1975. They charged an interest rate of 15%, $486,000. Some of our truckers filed claims against us at the same time that our insurance carrier filed for bankruptcy. Another insurance company claimed that we owed them $275,000 in premiums. On the first day of the job, we had no debt and a million dollars of liabilities. 1987. We were losing money for the first time since the 1950s. We wrote off $130,000 of bad debts. The oil field went to hell. It was so bad that I can remember waking up in the morning and having so many problems to figure out how to figure that I'm talking, talking, God help me find a modest return. It doesn't make sense. I am working hard. I had a good education. We have everything on the line and we are losing money or at best breaking even. I would not call the 1980s tough. I would call out to them in hell. I remember feeling the world in church on the stairs. There I had had the decision not to file to try and keep the company. Dad was downstairs. He looked up until he found me. You see, looking back at him, I could see this burden I had on my shoulders. That's when he said it. This is going to be a rat race. He looked inhuman. Son, who do you love most in this world? That's a tough question, Dad. I love you in a way, and I love Mom in a way. I said, I cannot make that decision. You're wrong. You have to love God more than anything, more than me, and more than your mother. I am going to put you down a lot in life, and your mother will let you down, not so often, maybe once or twice, but God will never let you down. He will never put you down in front of me. You have to love him more than you do. You have to put him in front of me. I never remember that. A mule forgets where he came from. I'm fearful of subconscious, subhuman lethargy. I work on the ranch. It's every day. This week we planted ryegrass, put out fertilizer, made ditches and weaned calves, worked cattle. Is it really a second job? I am tired when I leave. I get on a horse at the end of the day when it's dark and I look, watch the sunset and feel, because I am, it keeps me. I wake up full speed not remembering. I see myself working on the farm sometimes. I take a shower and then I take a shower. While I am shaving, I look at the mirror and I say to myself ten times every morning, I am nothing but a turd. I am a turd. No, I am a piece of turd. I am a piece. Today, I break from the rhythm in front of the mirror. 1987 was the camel crossing the inaudible desert, only his own tracks to witness him. That's when I carried you, Dad said. The most common words are what we do not know someone is saying.
All right, y'all have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks for listening. And this is Ben Luton again, based in New Orleans. Thank you. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. You can tune in every Saturday at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. And remember, you can find all of our previous programs archived on WRBH's SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for listening.